This morning, congregation, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 8. Acts 8, beginning at verse 26. You'll find this on page 1089 in the Pew Edition Bible. Again, beginning at verse 26, reading through verse 40. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure, He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself? Or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, the, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Here ends the reading of the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, congregation, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let us pray. Father in heaven, even now as we read and as we will hear the message of the Spirit's ministry, so too may that same Spirit, may he minister in our hearts so that like the Ethiopian eunuch, we may, after hearing that word, rejoice greatly in the good news of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, in whose name we pray these things. Amen. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, the 
book of Acts has been described by many as a continuation or part two, if you will, of the public ministry of Jesus Christ, making the distinction between the four Gospels, describing Jesus' ministry as the one who humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death. And now in part two in the book of Acts, it is the ministry of Jesus Christ, the glorified one, the exalted one, the conqueror of sin and death and hell. And now he will continue his ministry by means of his disciples. I'd also like you to consider this morning this story in the setting of the book of Acts as the ongoing battle, if you will, between Satan and the Lord. Consider, for example, how that battle was already announced in the Garden of Eden, that there would be an ongoing struggle, an ongoing fight between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And then in Jesus' public ministry, consider for a moment how often Jesus began his ministry in a certain location by casting out demons. In fact, Jesus described or interpreted that ministry as being like someone who enters into the house of a strong man and binds him and overcomes him. And he said at one point, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then you may be assured that the kingdom of God has arrived. But we have to be careful observers of how that battle, that warfare plays out. Because there will be times when it seems as though the devil has the upper hand. This Jesus, the Son of God, incarnate, performer of miracles, the one who brings the dead back to life, is the one who is arrested, interrogated, beaten, and crucified in a most gruesome manner, perhaps the most tortuous way of executing a criminal. And it would appear as though the devil has the upper hand. The people mock at the cross. He saved others. He cannot save himself. If you are the Messiah, come down from the cross. And yet we know, as Jesus will explain subsequent to his death and resurrection, that it was necessary as part of the way in which he would establish his rule, his kingdom, that the Son of Man must suffer and die, and then he will enter into his glory. And now the book of Acts. If you're at all familiar with with the layout of this book of the Bible and the, the narrative story of the work of the apostles, this continuing ministry of Jesus Christ, you'll see we're in a crisis point. Acts chapter 7, of course, is that, that very moving story of the arrest of Stephen and his sermon, his speech before the Jewish leaders, ending not with his vindication, as it were, but with his stoning, witnessed by none other than Saul of Tarsus. A defeat, it would seem, for the church of Jesus Christ. And as a result of that persecution, and Saul, like a madman, 
seeking whomever he could to arrest, to harm, even to kill. He's roaming around. And so the disciples scatter. A number go to Samaria. And Philip, the evangelist, Philip the deacon, is there as well in Samaria. But one thing you'll see very clearly in this story is the ministry of the Spirit. How does the Holy Spirit continue this ministry? Just as it would seem as though the devil has the upper hand, the devil has been victorious in suppressing the witness of the disciples of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. Now we're going to see the Spirit extending the witness of Jesus Christ beyond Jerusalem to Samaria and even to Ethiopia. In preparing this message, I have to tell you, I'll share with you that I spent a good part of yesterday basically rewriting my sermon because what drew me, again, looking back at this passage again in preparing for today's message, was, was the fact that there are four questions that deserve our attention. I'm going to follow it that way. That's how I've reordered my sermon. I want us to note carefully the four questions that are mentioned in verses 26 through 40. The Spirit, we believe, described here as an angel of the Lord, commands Philip, the evangelist, Philip, who's been ministering in Samaria, to leave Samaria and to go to Gaza to go and, and to witness. And he, he notices from a distance an impressive figure, a man, an Ethiopian, in a chariot, maybe something of a wagon. Don't think of a, a war chariot. Think of more like a wagon with a driver and with this Ethiopian with his scroll. And it, as was common in that day, he did not read it silently like we would do. He's reading it out loud. He's an important person, boys and girls. He is a court official. In the reign of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, he's a person of some stature, and yet, for all of his importance, for all of his learning, because even the language he uses, in the original language brings that out more clearly, he uses very proper, appropriate Greek, very formal Greek. For all of his elevated status, there's a serious problem. He's gone to Jerusalem to worship. Why he's doing that, we don't have clear answers. He wants to worship with the Jews. Was he a Jew? Probably not. He had been taught the ways of the Jews, was attracted to it. But as someone who is described here as a eunuch, someone who had been castrated in order to serve in the court of the queen, he was limited by his physical condition to enter only so far into the area of the temple, perhaps as far as the court of the Gentiles, but no further. Limited access. He would be seen by the Jewish community for all of his status as a treasurer in the court of Candace, he would be seen as someone certainly who was of lesser importance among the Jewish worshipers. He was defective. He was someone who was not qualified to enter in like others would 
to worship. And he's reading from the prophecy of Isaiah. And the Spirit tells Philip, go over to the chariot. And now that brings us to the first question. Philip simply asks the question, do you understand what you are reading? Now, in the original language, there's a play on words here. Do you understand what you are reading? Meaning, you know, not, not simply do you know the language, are you familiar with the language, but do you comprehend? Has your heart opened to this message is really what Philip is saying. Do you understand the implications of what you're reading? Which reminds us again that people can be expert, can be expert in their understanding of language, they may even have an extensive knowledge of the scriptures, and yet, and yet, they do not fully understand or do not understand as they ought to what the scriptures are saying. I want you to think about that for just a moment. There's a, there's a, a warning here. There's a caution for each of us. We can sit here Lord's Day after Lord's Day after Lord's Day hearing the word, reading the word. You read the word at your homes, in your devotions, at the dinner table, wherever you do that. It's possible, is it not, for you to be reading that over and over again, to be able to cite chapter and verse, and yet, in a more profound sense, you do not understand the Scripture. Now, if you say, how can that be? Think about Jesus' own public ministry and how the religious leaders of his own day, for all of their knowledge of the scriptures, did not understand the nature of Jesus' ministry. You think of Nicodemus coming at night. And Jesus explains to him about the need to be born again. No one sees the kingdom of heaven unless he's born again, unless there's this radical change. Nicodemus does not say, he does not say, well, yes, we know that the scriptures talk about that. I'm well versed in that. Nicodemus thinks that Jesus has said something very odd, almost ridiculous. How can a man enter into his mother's womb a second time? Remember what Jesus said? Jesus says, how is it that you, a teacher of Israel, don't understand these things? Or you think of Jesus explaining to his own disciples about the nature of his ministry. There were certain things they were drawn to. You can be sure of that. They were drawn to his language of the kingdom and his kingship. That he had arrived to announce the kingdom of God is at hand. And they were excited. They wanted to be in on the action. And yet when Jesus began to speak of the fact that the way in which he would enter into his kingdom and reign as king was through humiliation, suffering, and death, the disciples were appalled. Peter even taking him aside. And can you imagine the boldness, the gall of someone like Peter to take Jesus aside and say, Jesus, you've got it all wrong, Rabbi. To which Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me. 
you do not have in mind the things of heaven. You have in mind the things of man. And time and time again, you have a people who are steeped in the scriptures, and yet they either distort the scriptures, placing burdens upon the people, we've seen that throughout the Gospels, or they are simply blind to what the scriptures are saying in terms of their pointing to Jesus. Pointing to Jesus. And here's another theme throughout the book of Acts. No one will see Jesus in his glory. No one will be able to understand the scriptures as they proclaim the glory of Jesus apart from the Spirit's ministry in their hearts. It is not merely the persuasion of men. It's not Paul in his eloquence or Peter in his boldness. It is the Spirit who must open the heart. That's one of the reasons why I make a practice of praying before the preaching of the word. It's certainly not going to be through the eloquence or the lack thereof of this man that anyone comes to a saving faith in Jesus Christ or is edified through the preaching of the word. It is through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Do you understand what you are reading? Suggesting it's entirely possible to be reading these things and to quote them to study them, to reflect upon them, to pray about them, and you still don't understand what they're talking about. Because notice the second question, verse 31. He says, how can I, unless someone guides me? Unless someone guides me. Again, there's so much that needs to be unpacked in that short question. How can I unless someone guides me? The word that he uses is not simply, how can I understand these things unless someone explains them to me? He uses the word guide. I'll share with you uh, something that happened to me in the last several months in preparing for my uh, service now at Mid-America Reform Seminary. Uh, one of the things that I was asked to do in preparation for uh, the teaching position was I had to give a, a message in front of the faculty and the, and the student body. And I, I spoke, among other things, about this passage as it relates to the work of ministry. Because the Ethiopian eunuch is not just saying, I need someone to exegete the passage for me. He says, I need someone to guide me, to lead me along the way. The point being is that ministry, and I would say the Christian life, is not simply a matter of, of giving an explanation, simply like a classroom teacher would do, simply at the intellectual or academic level. We're talking here about guiding how can I understand these things unless someone, as it were, takes me by the hand or puts his arm around me and walks me through the ways of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Someone compared it in this way, and I think it's helpful to think about this. What is the difference between someone who simply sells maps in a store and says, you want to go to this mountain? 
You want to hike this mountain? Here are, here are maps you can buy. I sell them. Compare that to someone who says, I've got a map not only, but I, I will walk with you. I will face the hardships with you. I will show you the danger point. I will also share with you the joy of reaching the summit of that mountain. And I use that to point out what the nature of ministry ought to be. Faithful ministry, and I'm not limiting that, by the way, to your pastor. That would apply to elders, deacons. It applies actually to all of God's people in terms of what discipleship looks like. It's not just talking to someone in the abstract about things that are true. It's the willingness to walk with people and to show them this is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so I'll bear the hardships with you. As Paul says, we'll weep together, but we'll also rejoice together. I will show you. I will not, I will not disciple you from a distance and say, yeah, keep going. No, I'm there alongside of you. And I believe that's what this Ethiopian eunuch is pleading for. Not just can someone exegete the passage for me and show me what the, what the Greek or what the Hebrew is saying. I want someone to walk through this with me. And so he invited Philip to come and to sit with him. And what was he reading? He was reading from the prophecy of Isaiah. What was he reading? Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. And who can describe his generation? For, he, for his life is taken away from the earth. And so obviously the eunuch here is wondering, what, what is this referring to? Who is being described here? Is, is the prophet describing himself? Or we could say, as was common in, in Philip's day, many of the Jews thought this was a description of Israel. The suffering servant of the Lord was not Jesus Christ. It was the people of Israel. And that's why the third question is about whom, I ask you. Does the prophet say this? Is he saying this about himself or about someone else? It's that question that leads Philip. Notice he opened his mouth. And those expressions, by the way, are always curious, aren't they? How else is he going to talk unless he opens his mouth? But it's to talk about something important about to be said. Something important about to be, is about to be shared with this Ethiopian eunuch. And beginning with this scripture, he told them, he told him the good news about Jesus. What does that remind you of when you hear that encounter being described? He opens his mouth and beginning with that scripture, he says, let me tell you about the person being described here. It's not describing Isaiah the prophet. It's describing, it's describing the Messiah. And who you say is the Messiah? You ask, who is that Messiah? His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. He was sent by the Father in the fullness of time. 
He suffered and died and rose from the dead, and he now reigns at the Father's right hand. But why did he have to die? Why did he have to to face this humiliation? And surely Philip must have explained to him the nature of the atonement. That it was not enough for Jesus simply to teach and preach and to perform miracles, even raising the dead. The only way that he could bring salvation to his people, the only way that he could pay the debt in full was to lay down his life like a sacrificial lamb, like the Passover lamb of the Old Testament. And surely this eunuch must have been intrigued by this. Starting to see that the scriptures that he was so fond of, the scriptures have the story knitted together, beginning in Genesis and carrying through all the way to the end of the scriptures, talking about ultimately salvation through Jesus Christ. Does it remind you of another experience shortly after the resurrection of Jesus? Two travelers on the way to Emmaus, despondent, rejected, Why? Because, as they told Jesus, we had thought that Jesus of Nazareth would have brought the kingdom to bear, that the kingdom of heaven would have been established. But he's dead. He died. Our dreams were dashed. And from the law and the prophets, from all the scriptures, Jesus began to teach them about how the Son of Man had to suffer and die and then enter into his glory. Wouldn't you have loved to have been a witness to that sermon? Can you imagine what that sermon must have been like? Talking about how in the Garden of Eden already the gospel is revealed, in the life of the patriarch Abraham and other patriarchs, through the kingdom of David and Solomon and their descendants, And in the darkest moments of despair and the captivity, the Lord had promised not to forget his people, but to send a servant. He told him the good news about Jesus. And what is that good news? It's not simply that Jesus came to make salvation possible. It's up to you to accept it. It's not simply that Jesus provides a model for you to follow and then you make your way into the kingdom of heaven. No, it's that Jesus Christ did for you what you cannot do for yourself. You could never do for yourself. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. We get to the final question. What prevents me from being baptized? That's ultimately his response to Philip explaining the gospel. Not just explaining, but to use the language or the imagery here in chapter 8 of Acts, as Philip, as it were, is walking him along, guiding him, showing him this new life in Jesus Christ. He says, what's to prevent me from being baptized? 
You recall that when Jesus sent out his disciples in the Great Commission, he told them to do what? Baptize the nations, making them disciples, baptizing them into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, portraying not only the forgiveness of sins, but the lordship of Jesus Christ, that you belong to this triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and all the benefits of this saving work of Jesus Christ are now promised to you. That's an important distinction, by the way. Because there's a contrast, I believe, being made between what the Ethiopian eunuch had initially set out to do, to go to Jerusalem, to go to the temple. And as he arrives at the temple, he knows he's going to be told this far and no further. Sorry. Sorry. Not only because of your your race, but also because of your deformity. This far and no further. And now when he asks the question, what's to prevent me from being baptized? He realizes that in Jesus Christ, in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, he is accepted as a full-fledged member. So they went into the water. Were they immersed? We're not told. Don't assume that they're immersed. More than likely, they went up to their waist in the water and Philip baptized him. And again, notice when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more. You can read all sorts of explanations about what that means, that Philip was carried away. Some believe, some had this imagination that, that Philip was transported as you were like in Star Trek. I suspect that's not what really happened. More likely, this is an expression meaning the Spirit compelled Philip to leave that place and to go elsewhere. He saw Philip no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Now, the Ethiopian eunuch had been reading from Isaiah 53, and no doubt, subsequent to that, Perhaps he already knew of this passage, but subsequent to that chapter, in chapter 56, he would have read the following, and I'll close with this. This is the glory of the gospel now expanding. You would think that Satan, by persecuting the disciples, by killing off Stephen, had the upper hand, but now the gospel is expanding. Worldwide, Isaiah 56, verses 3 through 5. Listen carefully. Jot it down. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. 
What a beautiful proclamation of the gospel, dear friends, for you and for me. For those who hear the gospel, for those who receive Jesus Christ in faith, there is the promise that whereas in the Old Testament there were these limitations, this far and no further, now there is, there is full communion with the living God. But also our calling as the people of God, whether we're pastors, elders, deacons, leaders in the church, or simply members of the church, you and I are not here merely to explain the scriptures as our witness. As important as that is, you are here to guide, to guide. And so may the Lord equip you, may the Lord embolden you, may the Lord raise you up to be the kind of bold witness who when you, you guide them and you're prepared to suffer and rejoice with those to whom you witness that if you're willing to bear that with them, that you will share also, as Philip does with the eunuch, you will share in the rejoicing in the glory of Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless this to your hearts. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that in the pages of Scripture, Jesus Christ is proclaimed as the risen, glorified, reigning Son of God whose kingdom shall have no end. And so, Father, raise us up and embolden us to do the work that you have called us to do, making the good news known so that those who are trying to understand the Scriptures would be guided and they would come to see the beauty and the glory and the joy of the good news in Jesus Christ. Hear us then and bless this word to our hearts. For Jesus' sake.